Hello and welcome to part two of episode four of pay-per-view. I'm going to start with a story in the Daily Mail. Anger over guidance telling foster parents don't cuddle children. And this is another aspect of Orwell's 1984. And on a wider scale, the Hunger Games. The division between people. In the Hunger Games, people are in different sectors, separated from each other. And in Orwell's 1984, there was obvious division between people and if you want to control billions of people then you have to divide and rule them and this is what happens with religion happens in extreme cases with sports fans and one of the goals of this elite is breaking up the family unit they want to break up anything that allows people to come together this is one reason for the migration crisis and immigration. If you have the majority of the people in a country being native to that country, then if you try to introduce a world government body, which is the goal in the end, unelected, as I've talked about before on pay-per-view, with the unions like the European Union being the vehicles through which the world government would dictate to people in those particular areas of the world that the unions cover. If you want to do that, you're going to find it a lot more easier to do it if a sense of culture and nationhood and sovereignty is diluted by influence from other cultures and other people coming into a country and over time diluting. I mean, I remember seeing articles in newspapers going a while back now saying, what does it mean to be British anymore? What does it mean to be English anymore? Because this sense of culture and nationhood has been diluted and of course in terms of sovereignty that's what the unions are there to do i mean a stunning amount of laws now still because britain has not yet left the european union a staggering amount of laws in, in this country actually originate in the european union and whatever the european union says goes despite what the government of any country might prefer to do in terms of laws the European Union or that part of the world's union, in this case it's Europe, overrides it every time. And that's the idea. And then with that structure you have a world government dictating to the unions, dictating to those countries. You're going to get a lot less resistance if people have had their sense of culture and nationhood diluted by influence from other cultures. And that's what it's about. And they want to break up anything that allows people to come together to stand strong as a people resisting a tyranny resisting any attempt to dictate to them and obviously breaking up the family unit is a very effective way of doing that and just before i talk about the article on the subject of the family unit in scotland now a couple of years ago they had legislation passed where every child in scotland will have a named person who will basically oversee more or less every area of that child's life. And if there's anything the named person representing this state deems wrong, then the child will be taken away from the family. This is an article written a few years ago, written in The Scotsman, and I'm going to read it now because it's relevant. Named person's role to start before child's birth. The welfare of unborn children will come under scrutiny as part of the Scottish Government's proposals for a named person for every child in the country. 
guidance on the implementation of the legislation, which was published last week. This article was published on the 14th of February 2015 states that the named person can be involved with families in setting up planning and support during the last trimester of pregnancy. The legislation, which is due to come into effect in 2016, covers children from the day they are born up until the age of 18. But the guidance suggests that the named person chosen by the state would become involved at an earlier stage, a move that is likely to raise fresh concerns about the prospect of state interference in family life. But the guidance suggests that the named person chosen by the state would become involved at an earlier stage, a move that is likely to raise fresh concerns about the prospect of state interference in family life. The Children and Young People Act 2014 in Scotland will see every Scottish child allocated a named person, usually a health worker up to the age of five, followed by a teacher. The named person for each child will be identified about seven months into the pregnancy, Pregnant mothers will then be offered an opportunity to meet with their baby's named person and a midwife, which the official guidance suggests should take place in the family home. The disclosure that the scope of the proposals includes unborn babies comes as more details are emerging about how the legislation will work in practice. The guidance states where additional well-being needs are anticipated at birth, the prospective named person should be involved in planning and providing supports to eliminate, reduce or mitigate risks to well-being. This would have to be done on a non-statutory basis because unborn children are not covered by the Act. But the named person would play a lead role in drawing up antenatal support when the anticipated needs of the newborn baby are not generally available from routine services, the guidance states. As concerns grow about the impact of the legislation, teachers yesterday voiced concerns that they will struggle to fulfil the role of a named person because of already stretched workloads and the prospect of recriminations if a major abuse is uncovered where they are the named person. Liz Hunter, professional officer with the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, SSTA, said, Our concerns with it would be the time it would take the teachers to compile the work to support the child properly. It would be the time for task. The named person would be the coordinator for the children's plan. In that plan, they would have to speak to the parents, they would have to speak to the child, they have to speak to, if they had one, a social worker or a healthcare professional or an educational psychologist or a speech and language therapist. Under the guidelines, children who may have behavioural problems may require a risk assessment. There are also concerns among teachers about the prospect of repercussions if faced with a case of child abuse. The SSTA is currently polling opinion among this issue for a Scottish Government consultation in March. There are a lot of concerns among teachers for that, Miss Hunter said. They need to be trained in it and they need to know the legislation behind it and what basically is going to happen to them if they cannot fulfil that duty due to something happening within that school. It remains unclear if teachers will be able to opt out of the role if they find the workload too heavy, but this will be an issue raised in the forthcoming consultation with the Government. The Educational Institute for Scotland, EIS, agrees with the principle of a named person to provide a single contact point as a means to enhance children's access to services and support. But a spokesman said, We are also very clear that this will have significant implications in cases where a school is expected to be the provider of the named person. A Scottish Government spokeswoman said, These suggestions are wrong. The named person takes on their formal role from birth. 
they have no statutory role until then. There will also require to be extensive guidance for named persons regarding their role, responsibilities and legal position with regard to this role. Colin Hart, a no to named person, spokesman, said that guidance regarding pregnant women is symptomatic of the general problems associated with this law which undermines parents and stretches already limited resources. Parents will become helpless spectators in the lives of their children and that will start in the mother's womb as state control is extended there. Last night a Scottish government spokesman said the service strengthens the supportive role already performed by teachers and health visitors for families and allows the named person to call on other services to give support if needed. It can prevent early concerns going unchecked and potentially becoming more serious issues. Individual teachers or health visitors will not be liable as ultimate responsibility lies with the health board or local authority. In Highland, where the approach was piloted, experience has shown the system reduces the workload on hard-pressed staff and has been welcomed by families. Named person debate leaves unanswered questions. Who will the named person be? Health workers will usually take on the role of named person from birth. The responsibility will then pass to the teacher at school age. Who is responsible for any legal comeback? The Scottish Government insists health boards who employ health workers in later councils who run schools will have legal responsibility in the event of comeback. They insist this means no additional legal responsibilities for individual professionals. But the guidance states the named person will carry out statutory functions and the lack of clarity on the issue is concerning teachers. Are they replacing the role of social workers? Social workers will not be named persons, meaning it is down to the named person to pass on any suspicions of abuse. The government says teachers should already be doing this and the new regime should not add to their workload. Is the named person taking over the role of parents? Good question. The government insists this won't happen, but this has been at the heart of campaigners' concerns. The named person is meant to help parents access a parenting programme or specialist services such as disability-friendly play activities. They can also arrange child bereavement counselling, put mentoring in place for a child who is disengaged from learning or facilitate access to support for a child who is at risk of being excluded from school. They are obliged to seek the views of the parents unless child protection issues are involved. What does the teacher do in their named person role if they suspect a welfare problem with their child? It is then up to the named person to discuss the matter with the child, raise the issue with health or social work colleagues and seek further assessment and assistance. What happens during school holidays? It remains unclear how the named person service would operate during holidays. The guidance does say contingency arrangements should be in place during this period and should be able to respond to urgent matters such as police or social work involvement in a child protection or criminal inquiry. Who is the named person for children who leave school before they are 18? The guidance says each council should agree arrangements for children in this position and the named person should be able to access and analyse relevant information from the child's previous named person. They don't specify which professional should do this. Well, this is the state continuing to take over from parents more and more in terms of being involved in a child's life rather than just leaving it to the parents and it's Huxley's brave new world in which the state was mum and dad 
the state brought up children. And there's a very good interview with a woman called Maggie Malone, who went on the brilliant Richie Allen show. Real journalist, Richie Allen, great interviewer. And it's a very interesting interview. When I upload this part two of this episode of Pay-Per-View, I'll include in the description a link to the interview where you can hear what Maggie Malone says. Very interesting. Also, on the subject of family, this is one of the reasons, although far from the only reason, why we are seeing, and we've seen over the last several years now, children being taken away from loving families for spurious reasons. And this has actually been covered in the mainstream media as well at times. The story goes on. Foster parents are discouraged from hugging or cuddling the children they are bringing up. A scathing report found yesterday. They are deterred from showing affection by warnings and official guidance about the risk of sex abuse, it said. The review of foster care blamed ministers for encouraging the borrowing and hugging, which affects more than 50,000 children who are living with temporary foster families after being taken into state care. The inquiry said foster parents were also hamstrung by rules that mean they are not allowed to make everyday decisions, such as taking a child for a haircut or to have their ears pierced. Children have been told not to call their foster parents mum and dad, and couples have been warned they are not foster parents but merely foster carers. This is one of the things they do, not just in this case, but in other situations. Changing definitions. If you can change definitions, then you can dictate what people can and can't do. And you can dictate what things are and what they're not in a way that suits you. And what you do in this case is you change it from parents to carers. And then you keep changing the definition, you keep changing permissions. And eventually you get to a point where they're not really parents at all and the idea in the end as I've said before I mentioned Brave New World earlier and in Brave New World of course there were no parents children were created in laboratories and different castes in society and I mentioned Hunger Games just now where people are in different sectors and if you look at maps that the United Nations have produced as part of something called Agenda 21 if you go on the internet and type in UN biodiversity map. You can see maps and on those maps only certain parts, there's one for North America that comes to mind that I've seen before, only certain parts of a country, given how vast America is, are for normal use. In other words, people live in those areas like people live in areas now. They want to make vast tracts of land unpopulated or for some areas highly regulated as they say and it's all part of this hunger games society and in terms of brave new world scenario where you have children being created in laboratories that's what transgenderism is about where the agenda behind transgenderism is an end of gender towards this very end i'm talking about and if you want a synthetic human form connected to technology on the body and in the body, then you have a form that does not procreate. And that's the idea. And also, that plays into the depopulation agenda that I've talked about before. So, there's all these connections, and that's what pay-per-view is about, showing the connections, the bigger picture. The, the story goes on. When carers want to love a child, they should not be discouraged by formal guidance or feel intimidated by the remote threat of allegations, their report said. 
foster parents were taught to fear allegations of sexual misconduct and often believed that demonstrations of physical affection were frowned upon. It added, one foster mother was met with disapproval when she kissed a baby's tummy after changing its nappy. Foster fathers were even discouraged from picking up a child from school or an evening out by instructions that said, carers should be aware of the possible risks of being alone in a car with a foster child. Advice that children should not go into a carer's bed or not right for an infant or toddler who will often value the comfort that can bring, particularly when ill or after nightmares. The report said Department for Education guidance and regulations are silent on this key issue and such silence, which is disappointing, must encourage the view that physical affection is considered inappropriate. It called on ministers to say that foster parents should not curb the natural instinct to demonstrate personal physical warmth. You see, this is exactly the same as they're doing with transgenderism where and sexual harassment, where genuine cases of people being sexually harassed and feeling they're in the wrong body are exploited towards the agenda's desired ends. And in this case, it's cases of genuine child abuse being exploited to serve this agenda I'm talking about with this story. The article goes on. The report by former Bernardo's chief Sir Martin Neri and social work advisor Mark Owers effectively called for a revolution in the treatment of foster families who bring up three quarters of the children under state care at a cost to the local councils of £1.7 billion a year. It called for teams of social workers to be removed from the lives of foster families, freeing them from bureaucracy and saving millions in taxpayers' money. Each foster family should in future be supervised by just one social worker. It said foster families should provide permanent rather than temporary homes for children removed from abusive or incompetent natural parents. Social workers should stop insisting that children regularly see the natural parents from whom they have been removed. Birth parents should no longer have a say over children's lives, for example by having the right to decide their child should have a haircut. Foster parents should be encouraged to adopt children, it said. The report, commissioned by the Department for Education, praised the efforts of foster parents, saying the children they bring up do well at school given their poor start in life. It said attempts by fostering organisations and trade unions to turn foster parents into paid independent professionals must be resisted because we want foster carers who will be as biased and tenacious in pursuing the interests of their foster child as many of us are in pursuing the interests of our own children, said the report. The report added, when we first heard of a carer having to get social worker permission for minor issues such as allowing a child to have a haircut, we thought we were listening to exceptional occurrences. Sadly, this was not the case. The inquiry found that contrary to regular claims that there was a crisis in foster care, foster parents are successful and there is no shortage of people willing to foster. Foster parents are also well paid, it said. One level of bureaucracy, independent reviewing officers, should be abolished entirely, the inquiry recommended. Together with savings for more efficient use of agencies, this would help save taxpayers more than £100 million a year, it said. Children of Families Minister Nadhim Zahawi said, We welcome this thorough and insightful report. We will carefully consider the review's recommendations to determine how they can help us to make sustainable improvements to the fostering system and to the outcomes for looked-after children. That article was actually from a couple of weeks ago, but I've read it out on this episode of Pay-Per-View because it's relevant and I wasn't aware of it until a few days ago. more recent story, also in the Daily Mail, I'm going to continue the theme of state interference in childhood. The idea is that the state brings up children in the end, rather than parents. London borough that banned three-year-old boy from playing with a toy car in a park plans £500 fines for climbing trees, flying kites and playing cricket in open spaces. A London borough plans to fine people £500 if they break new rules for open spaces. 
Climbing trees, flying kites and playing cricket in open spaces could be punishable offences under new regulations. Wandsworth Council banned the father of a three-year-old boy from playing with a toy car in a park last week. And now the borough has updated its 27-point list for behaviour in parts with 49 new diktats which include banning metal detectors and remote control boats. Councillors will vote on Wednesday whether or not to accept the proposals. The rules will be enforced by civilian park police who dress like Met officers with a kit of stab vests, handcuffs and body cams but lack their powers. So we've got police going around with stab vests, handcuffs and body cams for kids playing with toys in a park. And the world's not mad? The story goes on. Anyone who cannot provide a reasonable excuse for their transgression will be told they are committing an offence. Three-year-old Idris Wyatt-Steele and his father were forced to leave Battersea Park when police accused them of breaking park bylaws by playing with a toy car and threatening them with caution. A spokesman for Wandsworth Council told Mail Online no caution was given to him and there was no toy car. He said the father was playing with a remote-controlled toy rather than the child. So it's alright for a father to do it then, but not the child. Outdoor play campaigners said Wandsworth's new laws will hit some of the birds' poorest children hardest. They told the Evening Standard the Conservative-run authority had allowed a go-ape adventure playground costing from £20 to £62 a time to be built in Battersea Park, but were now cracking down on youngsters climbing trees for free. See, it's okay for people to pay to play in the park, but anything for free they have to crack down. Paul Hocker, director of charity London Play, told the paper the council's actions seem to suggest they don't want the poor kids getting above themselves, literally. They're bolstering their huge back reserves by finding children by climbing trees or flying a kite in the park. Play is now more important than ever to London's children's health, but they need places to play freely, and this is under threat in Wandsworth. A council spokesman told Mail Online that a six-year-old child climbing a tree is one thing, but an 18-stone rugby player who might damage the tree by breaking the branches is another. That is the sort of behaviour we're trying to discourage. We've had people badly injured themselves in the past. It's not about stopping children from playing innocent games or engaging in healthy outdoor activities. It's about making the spaces more enjoyable for everyone. When asked if the scheme was designed to make money for the authority, the spokesman said, Our park police have common sense. This is not about making money. We don't want people breaking the rules. The chances of anyone being charged is remote. If people do end up going to court and are fined by magistrates, the council doesn't get the authority. It goes to the treasury. Well, this is... Big Brother from 1984, this is state interference in children's lives, as I mentioned just now. See, as I've said before, they can't just bring in their agenda in one go, because the world that people have been up to this point, and the world they want to bring in, is so dramatically different. They have to constantly prepare the ground. They have to do it bit by bit. And so you start off with state interfering in children's lives like this, and then you move to taking children from families for spurious reasoning, through collusion with social services, councils and judges, etc. Not everybody in those professions, of course not, but certain people. And you also are breaking up the family, as with the example that I, with the article that I read just before this one. And you've got transgenderism as well, which is leading to the end of gender and the end of procreation and the end of family. That ties into the Brave New World situation I mentioned just now. So it's all going in the same direction. It's all part of the same agenda. But you can only see that if you know what the agenda is and you understand the context. You, then you can make the connection. And that's what pay-per-view is all about. Also, a point worth making that doesn't necessarily directly relate to this article, but it is related because of terrorist attacks and because of crime being emphasised over the years more and more in the media. 
parents are reluctant to let their kids play out and just let them go out and that will be it. If they do go playing out, they've got to be with a parent. Of course, there will be exceptions to this, but that seems to be the way things are now. And I remember when I was a kid, the fact that it was me and my best mate and other people that were out, we would go out playing virtually every day and we would come in late at night when it was dark or when it was getting dark. And the fact that there was a group of us was enough. That's not necessarily the case these days. You would go anywhere. And because I did that, I can see the difference between then and now. I'm 27 now. And and I started playing outside when I was eight or nine. And it helped, I guess, to be fair, that my best mate did live next door to me. So I'd go out with him and his brother and a few other people. And his brother was a few years younger than my mate, who was one year younger than me. That's We were in single figures. And we would just go out and go anywhere as long as we came back when we were supposed to come back. That was enough. So I can see the difference between that and now. And it's like I said before, when you come into this world, you tend to accept that how things are is normal and they're like that because that's the best way for them to be. People older can see the difference because they lived a different world. And it's a shame because play is very important to growth. If you get kids outside, they're exercising, they're getting used to being active, they're becoming more streetwise through it, not everybody of course, but they're getting used to being outside and crossing roads and finding their way around. There's so many benefits that come from play. It's stimulating the right side of the brain as well, and education is there to, as much as possible, get people to be primarily left side of the brain, perception, so that, because left side of the brain is structure, it's apparent logic, it's rules, it's limitation, whereas the right brain is creativity, it's looking at things from a different angle, it's spontaneity, it's connections, which is very appropriate obviously to pay-per-view. There was a study conducted by Kayun Hee Kim, Professor of Education at the College of William and Mary in London, and they found that as children pass through the education system, they become less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative and verbally expressive, less humorous, less imaginative, less unconventional, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, which is essential to being able to see the bigger picture of what's going on, less synthesizing and less likely to see things from a different angle. Now, all of those traits are traits of the right side of the brain. This is why artistic subjects like art and like music and drama are cut back in favour of left brain subjects in education. It's not an accident, it's done for a reason. I'm not saying the teachers know that. I'm not saying even the head teachers will know that. But ultimately that's what it's about. The next story, we're continuing the theme of children. This is the Hunger Games Society again. This is in the independent. Surge in poverty rates among children of public sector worker parents. One in seven children whose parents work in public sector jobs now live below breadline and increased 40% in eight years, according to research. Rates of poverty among children of public sector workers have surged since 2010 following the government's pay restrictions and in-work benefit cuts, new analysis shows. One in seven children whose parents work in public sector jobs, such as teaching and nursing, are now living below the breadline marking an increase of 40% in eight years, according to the research by the Trade Union Congress. 
The research shows that since 2010, an extra 150,000 children have been pushed into poverty, with families where both parents work in the public sector hit hardest by the government's pay restrictions and benefit changes. For these households, average household income will be down around £83 a week in real terms by April 2018. Households where one parent works in the public sector and another works in the private sector will meanwhile lose on average £53 a week. The South West has seen the biggest increase in child poverty rates among families with a public sector worker in England during this period, with a 55% rise. It is followed by the North West, where the figures rose by 52%, and the East Midlands, where it doubled 50%. TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady urged that the government's pay restrictions and in-work benefit cuts were causing needless hardship. She added public servants shouldn't have to worry about feeding or clothing their kids, but many are struggling to afford even the basics. Ministers must give public sector workers the pay rise they have earned. If they don't, more families will fall into poverty. It comes after a study last year found more than half of Britons living below the poverty line were in a household where someone is in work, despite Theresa May saying she believed that work was the best route out of poverty. Researchers at Cardiff University found a record 60% of those in poverty live in a household where someone is in employment and that the risk of poverty for adults in working households had increased by more than a quarter. 27% over the past decade. A separate study shows almost half of all children in some UK cities are estimated to be living in poverty, with parts of London and Birmingham seeing levels rise by 10 percentage points in the past two years to above half of all children. Margaret Greenwood, Shadow Minister for Employment and Inequalities, said, The increase in child poverty is a direct result of this government's utter failure to tackle the rising cost of living in stagnating wages and its slashing of the social security support available to families. It is sadly no surprise that the Tories refused to set a target to reduce child poverty. It is completely unacceptable that the public sector workers and their families are struggling to make ends meet. A Labour government will put an end to the public sector pay cap and ensure security and dignity for all. I don't believe that for a second. They don't want financial security, they want the opposite. A government spokesperson said, We do not recognise these figures. The best route out of poverty is through employment, and since 2010, an extra 3 million more people are now in work, and 600,000 fewer children are living in workless households. But we recognise that budgets are tight, which is why we have confirmed that the 1% public sector pay cap will no longer apply, and we've doubled free childcare with £5,000 per child each year. Just to get back to that point about Labour government putting an end to public sector pay cap and ensure security and dignity for all. As I said earlier in part one, the idea is and relevant to the Hunger Games society. Everyone's in poverty apart from the elite. So it doesn't matter which part is in power, they're not going to bring an end to this. And also the idea, as the article says, Theresa May has said that work is the best route of poverty. What about, as I said in part one, addressing the fact that until you reorganize the distribution of wealth and until you address the fact that banks can lend people money that doesn't exist and charge them interest on it then you're never going to solve poverty because there's a fundamental flaw in the money system itself money which doesn't actually exist called credit until that changes nothing can change until the massive imbalance of wealth changes nothing can change and especially when you've got an elite to own the global banking system and use money as a means of control and debt as a means of control. This is what getting young people up to the neck in debts to go to university is all about. And also if you do that, you make it a lot harder for them to get their own place. And of course we've got a lot of young people nowadays living at home 
and the idea is that people live in, as I've talked about before, as part of the Agenda 21, which I mentioned earlier, what are called human settlement zones in narrow, ridiculously narrow living space, in high-rise flats, basically, in smart cities, which connects into the transhumanism agenda and the depopulation agenda. So they want less homeowners, not more, despite what they might say, despite what government might say, we're going to pledge to do this, we're going to pledge to make a difference, so there's more homeowners. The agenda is for less homeowners and more poverty, to say the least, as far as poverty goes then. Carrying on the theme of homelessness, this is in The Independent. London Underground criticised over heartless announcements telling passengers not to encourage beggars. This is again part of this division between people that I mentioned earlier. The London Underground has been criticised over announcements urging passengers not to encourage beggars and buskers by giving them money. Broadcasting some tube stations, Transport for London started playing the messages on the advice of the British Transport Police which made the recommendation in 2015. There are beggars and buskers operating on this train. Please do not encourage their presence by supporting them in states. While it is not new, the advice appears to have attracted renewed criticism from tube users amid a surge in rough sleepers and growing awareness that homeless people are dying on the streets. Just a question, what kind of society allows that to be the case when they are homeless because they can't pay back money that doesn't exist in the first place? A psychopathic society, as I said in part one, a society that only cares about its own agenda and uses people to its own ends. What is a fundamental characteristic of psychopathy? No empathy, no empathy for others of your actions, just doing whatever it takes to reach your end. We live in a psychopathic society because we live in a psychopathic world in terms of those directing the run of the world and those behind them. That doesn't mean every political figure, but the overall direction of the world and those behind it, psychopathic. The article goes on. One passenger tweeted, just heard the TFL message on the tube not to encourage the beggars and busters. What's that about? These are people we're talking about, not pigeons in the park. Well, to us they are, but to people running the world they are nothing more than the equivalent of cattle to be used and abused as necessary another tweeted last month saying it was the most heartless announcement i've ever heard on the tube while a third passenger described it as disgusting tfl urged the announcement was intended to prevent criminal networks from operating on the tube and encourage people to donate to the london charities homeless group rather than to beggars traveling on the tube or rail network but John Glacken, a former rough sleeper who was the founder of Street Kitchen, which provides meals for homeless people, said it marked a further demonization and criminalization of homeless people. It reinforces that negative attitude or dehumanizing people with problems that can be solved so easily, he added. My understanding is that in the train stations, they have a bigger problem than people in suit shoplifting and dodging fares than homeless people. I've never met this criminal network. In Houston, they have big spikes up. There are bars on benches so people can't sleep there. It's this hostile environment that's been created. Again, what kind of society would do that? Stop homeless people having somewhere to sleep when they've only got the outdoors in the first place. The remarks come two days after a homeless man in his 40s was found dead in an underpass just beneath Parliament. The Portuguese national, whose body was found in Exit 3 in Westminster Station, is said to have applied to be awake the week before. When I was in Manchester a few weeks ago, a person there I met who lives in Manchester said that some of the homeless people there have jobs, but they just can't afford their own place. They just can't afford what they would need to, to not be homeless.
The story goes on. Figures show a 73% increase in rough sleepers across England over the last three years. On any given night in autumn last year, 4,751 people were recorded sleeping on the streets, a figure that has more than doubled since 2010. Siwan Hayward, TfL's head of transport policing, urged the organisation was working to tackle rough sleeping, with a dedicated outreach team at night to help homeless people use night buses and tubes as a place to sleep. The team are part of the mayor's efforts to help connect rough sleepers with services in the capital and they have helped many vulnerable people find accommodation, access to support services and reconnected them with family and friends, she added. We encourage people to donate to the London Charities Homeless Group rather than to beggars travelling on the Chiwa Rail Network so that donations can directly help fund homeless services. It's the Hunger Games Society. And I do find it interesting that people like Theresa May and David Cameron, etc. talk about British values and the fact that we live in a civilised society when things like this happen. And we have an increase in homelessness. The two don't go together as far as I can see it. 1984 and Big Brother again. This is in the Daily Mail. We spy trouble. Even GCHQ is worried about smart meters, say experts who fear a Trojan horse-style cyber attack. Computer experts are warning that the government's rollout of a new type of smart energy meter will leave households vulnerable to cyber attack. The consequences, they say, could be dire, with homes potentially losing their power supply and hackers selling stolen details to criminals. Fraud is also a worry if hackers are able to inflate meter readings and intercept payments. Tackling the security concerns is the key reason why the introduction of new style SMETs to smart meters is already three years overdue. One expert has told the Mail on Sunday that poor smart meter technology has created a Trojan horse for criminals to use. The spy agency GCHQ, it is believed, has also raised concerns over the security of smart meters. These issues are the latest in a string of problems to plague the introduction of smart meters. Although they are designed to help households keep on top of bills and remove the need for meters to be read by someone coming to your home, they are proving problematic in practice. As the Mail on Sunday has highlighted, some users have experienced billing problems, meters suddenly not working, and the new technology preventing them from switching suppliers to take advantage of better rates. In 2009, all 27 million homes in Britain were earmarked for a smart meter by 2020. But despite an overall £11 billion budget that includes £224 million to be spent on selling the smart meter idea to households. Only 8 million homes have signed up. See, they can afford all that money for this, but not for homeless people and people who need money in society. Wireless technology expert Nick Hunt of London-based firm Y4 believes criminals have the capability to break into smart software with bugs that could then send their own signals. The technology strategist says... This smart meter technology has created a Trojan horse. My understanding is that the British spy agency, GCHQ, were not best pleased when it realised how insecure these devices could be, and it is still not happy. That is why it has taken so long to release the new SMETS 2 models. SMETS stands for Smart Metering Equipment Technical Specification. Model 2 is set to replace the much-criticised SMETS 1. The new meters will remove a problem where customers have to change device when they change supplier. But security experts fear this only raises the scale of the potential threat. Hun adds countries such as North Korea and Russia have the expertise and know-how that might enable them to tap into the on-off switch of a smart meter. Well, two things for that. First of all, more demonization of Russia. I talked about that before in pay-per-view. And also, do we not think that the West... Britain, America, doesn't also have the expertise and know how to do that. Of course they do. 
He argues that with a coordinated power surge, there is potential to damage part of the national grid. Such cyber attacks may see more science fiction than fact. But last October, the government admitted NHS computers had been the victim of a WannaCry malware attack believed to have come from North Korea. Another attack, known as Mirai, from hackers in the US infected 2.5 million Wi-Fi-enabled smart devices two years ago, causing chaos by crashing websites. There are also concerns that many of the smart meters being installed are made by Chinese firms. A smart meter is a smart meter. Does it matter where it's made? What? The problems with smart meters will be the same wherever they're made. Lennon says the big problem is that the smart meter project is being blindly driven forward by career civil servants who do not have a clue about cybersecurity and who do not care as the taxpayers footing the bill. Daniel Meisler, a director at cybersecurity firm IO Active and author of the book The Real Internet of Things, says as the smart meter advances, the security risks go up as hackers realise the potential returns are greater. The Internet of Things, the CIA has talked about the Internet of Things, and that is or part of this smart grid where everything is connected to the internet. Home appliances, and in the end, the human mind will be connected to the smart grid, also called the cloud. And this is what people like Ray Kurzweil talk about and write books about. And the smart grid slash cloud is planned to be controlled by artificial intelligence, as I've talked about already. The article goes on. Ensuring different suppliers can use the same meter technology adds to this vulnerability and experts need time to address this. The San Francisco-based expert believes a man-in-the-middle attack is what suppliers should perhaps fear the most. This involves planting a fake receiver that intercepts radio wave-style communication between the smart meter and supplier, cutting into a message intended for a nearby mobile phone signal mast. An attacker might eavesdrop or hack in to give fake information pretending to be the supplier. Meisler says... Let us not get carried away. These meters can do real good and will hopefully stay safe. Well, they're not safe. Because the one thing that this article does not mention is the health effects, which I've talked about before in pay-per-view, in the first episode, the pilot episode. So they won't stay safe. They can't stay safe if they're not safe in the first place. But hackers could disable energy supplies and break into other gadgets around the home if your meter becomes able to talk to other devices, Meisler says. Well, see... Bigger picture, again. Yes, people are right to have privacy concerns with smart meters. But the bigger picture is the smart grid, which is smart and other wireless technology, creating a, a wireless network of information. And a definition of smart technology is that it can communicate with any other form of smart technology. So the privacy concerns for smart meters are the microcosm and the macrocosm, really, in that sense. The article goes on. He says there have been examples abroad where meter readings have been artificially inflated by hackers who then tried to intercept payments. Although hardware can be hacked through the airways via computer viruses, it may also be possible for the meters to be physically tampered with. Travis Goodseed, an American cyber expert, managed to bypass a smart meter security code by inserting a hypodermic needle into the circuit board a few years ago and used an oscilloscope to read electronic signals to spy on the user. The National Cybersecurity Center, an arm of GCHQ, has been consulted on the rollout of the meters. It insists the meters have been designed so that no single compromise can have a significant impact. In a message to users, it says, No system is completely secure, but we are confident the smart metering system strikes the best balance between security and business needs while meeting national security objectives. Smart Energy GB, the government-funded voice of the smart meter rollout, has been focusing on singing its own praises rather than addressing security issues. But there's not many praises to sing 
for being behind a rollout of smart meters. Last month, the world's first choir of smart meter experts. Did I mention the world was mad? I might have done. Released a single, Changes, featuring staff from British Gas, SSE and E.ON. It has had a meagre 6,500 internet views. I can't think why. Robert Cheeswright, interesting name, of Smart Energy GB is defiant. He says smart meters are one of the safest and most secure pieces of technology in your home. The system was designed with security at its heart. So that paragraph should say Robert Cheeswright of Smart Energy GB is clueless. Only energy data is stored in a meter and this is encrypted. Your name, address, bank account or other financial details are not stored on the meter, says Robert Cheeswright. As I said before, the agenda would not work if everybody involved in any way in the agenda being brought into society knew what they were doing. Obviously it wouldn't work if that was the case. And people like Robert Cheeswright are a classic example of people making contributions every day towards an agenda they have no idea about by an elite. The last story, continuing the theme of Big Brother in the Daily Mail, mother of two, 39, is threatened with jail and finds it up to £100,000 and intimidated by uninformed officers after she put cardboard box in the wrong recycle bin. Mum of two and small business owner, Alison Mapletoft, is a model citizen. She donates to a wide range of good causes and has never been in trouble with the law. So when she received a letter fining her £600, she was horrified. Her crime? Putting a cardboard box into the wrong recycle bin. I did mention the world was mad, didn't I? Alison, 39, who lives in Hove, East Sussex, with husband Charlie, an analyst, and their two daughters, is the latest victim of the so-called dustbin police. Employed by local authorities and other companies, they are targeting people for minor contraventions and waste disposal regulations in what many see as merely a money-making ploy. The language in the letter was so threatening, I genuinely worried that if I didn't pay the fine, I could end up in prison over a cardboard box, says Alison. When I called the number on the letter, I was treated like I committed some terrible crime. They kept saying there's zero tolerance and repeatedly called it a criminal case, warning me I could get a criminal record, even end up in jail, if I didn't pay the fine, which could go up. I told them we had no idea we were doing anything wrong by putting that box in that bin, but they didn't want to know. My husband was out of work at the time, so money was tight. I knew that to cover the fine, I'd have to use the wages I would have paid my only member of staff in January, so I had no choice but to let her go. I also had to cancel my eight-year-old daughter Iris's swimming lessons because I couldn't afford to pay them. When I explained why, Iris became worried sick that her mummy was going to end up behind bars over Christmas. What for? Putting a cardboard box in a bin. And the ramifications weren't only financial. The fine and the threat of a criminal record and even prison led to Alison needing treatment from a GP for anxiety and panic attacks. I went to the surgery and said, I know it sounds mad, but I'm stressed out, unable to sleep or relax, and all because of a cardboard box, recalls Alison. She could see the state I was in, so prescribed anti-anxiety medication, which helped a bit. Alison, also mum to 18-month-old Matilda, is a designer and a committed recycler who rents a studio within a drama school a few miles from her home. The limited edition scarves and cushions she designs are manufactured in Yorkshire, so she has little business-related waste. However, late last year, she had a delivery of filling for feather cushions she was making in a 25-inch square cardboard box. Knowing that there was no recycling bin in the building where her studio is located, Alison's husband deposited the carefully flattened box in a nearby communal recycling bin. Staff working for a company, 3GS, ostensibly employed by Brighton and Hove Council to tackle the serious problem of fly tipping, 
came across the box which still had Alison's business address label attached. They decided she had contravened waste disposal laws stated company generated waste must go in a commercial bin, not a communal residential one. You see, authority, and it's the same with political correctness, zealots, as I've talked about before, and they're like those trying to destroy freedom of speech. They don't do context. They don't do judging situations on its merit. They have to deal with every situation the same. In December, 3GS issued her with a £300 penalty for fly tipping and a second £300 fine for not having a waste disposal contract in place. We have to have contracts now, despite the fact she generates no more than two cardboard boxes a month. We have to have contracts to put something in a bin. Right, that settles it. If I didn't mention the world was mad before, I have now. As she uses a PO Box business address, by the time the letters arrive, she had just seven days to pay up instead of the statutory 14 or face prosecution. I knew it was wrong and that they were intimidating me, rather than the real criminals who dump fridges and mattresses on our streets because I'm a soft, easy-to-trace target, says Alison. But I couldn't live with the worry about what might happen to me and my family if I didn't pay the fine. So I paid. Well... See, talking about rubbish, we've got people being fined, or we have had in the past anyway, people being fined and putting their wheelie bin out on the wrong day or not in the right position. Well, what about if people in that street came together? I've talked about the division of people and the manipulated division of people in today's pay-per-view, but what about if people came together in that street and all of them committed the apparent indiscretion that led to this woman being fined until the law was changed because if the law is there to protect us and for our well-being and some of them are then fair enough that law should remain but if it's there to control us and dictate the fine detail of our lives then people should not follow those rules and if people came together and supported each other then they couldn't do things like this and what we've got what all this is about rubbish like this and other situations where we're subjected to ridiculous rules and laws. It's like laboratory rats or mice in a maze. The mice will go down a certain channel, it'll get an electric shock, it'll come back. And it'll try going down another channel, it'll get an electric shock and come back. Then it'll go down the channel that the people doing an experiment want it to go down. It'll get no shock. And over time, eventually, you can take the shock equipment away, the mouse will still not go down those channels. You don't want it to go down because it's been conditioned. And that's what all this stuff of ridiculous rules and impositions about, ultimately, or at least on one level. And this goes back to what I said earlier about people older who can point out to those younger and those coming into the world now that this is not the way that life has always been in terms of the increase of it and the increase in surveillance and political correctness. The article goes on. Brighton and Hove Council has employed 3GS which keeps 60% of every fine paid to police waste disposal since April 2016. While no fixed penalty notices were issued to residents in either 2014 or 2015, the company sent out 2,133 in 2016. Nationally, 54,991 fixed penalty notices relating to waste disposal and littering were issued in 2014, compared with 180,000 in 2016 with 51 councils having now handed over responsibility of issuing these penalties to outside agencies. Last year's figure is likely to be even higher. And yet it appears to have had little impact on the ongoing issue of fly tipping on our streets. Even the Green MP for Brighton, Caroline Lucas, who has been 
inundated with complaints about 3GS from residents, has said a more proportionate response would be advisable or a warning from the company rather than financial penalties. A spokesperson for Brighton and Hove Council said anyone who felt they had received a notice by mistake should make a representation to 3GS and if they are still concerned they can write to the council. Cases referred to the council are reviewed on an individual basis to ensure that fixed penalty notices are received correctly. Charity shop assistant manager Claire Clark was also left badly shaken after an officer from a local authority turned up at her door last August. They threatened steep fines and a prison sentence after she left a wooden pallet in the grounds of the block of flats where she lived, ready for a builder to collect. She was accused of fly-dipping, issued with a penalty notice for £350, and while being covertly filmed by a body camera in her own home, threatened, wrongly, it says in brackets here, with a fine of up to £100,000 and a six-month prison sentence if she didn't pay up. Claire, 52, from Hainault, North East London, who has never knowingly broken the law, was alarmed by a uniformed enforcement officer employed by Redbridge Council turned up at her door and asked if he could come in and speak to her. He walked into my living room and said the council had received a complaint from a neighbour and he would have to caution me, says Claire. He proceeded to interrogate me about the wooden pallet. It was only afterwards that he told me he was filming. It's interesting when they say, people say they've got a complaint from someone. Do they ever name them? It's just a, you've got a complaint from someone, or Anybody could say that. He then started talking about £100,000 fines and imprisonment, and feeling like I was being accused of some dreadful crime, I started crying and told him, you're frightening me. As Claire didn't have the money to pay the fine, she contacted a local MP to appeal against it on her behalf. However, she was unable to get it rescinded, and in the meantime, the penalty increased to £400, which Claire paid in September. I ended up borrowing the money from my mum, who's in her 70s, as I was too scared about what might happen if I didn't, says Claire, who was separated and has one grown-up daughter and two grandchildren. When she turned down a GP's offer of medication, Claire was referred for cognitive behavioural therapy-based counselling to help her cope, which is ongoing. After repeated requests to see the video, filmed in her home, she was finally sent the footage last November. It was horrendous watching the scene unfold, a strange man coming into my home with, unbeknown to me, a body-worn camera and threatening me with huge fines and imprisonment, says Claire. It's interesting that if you tried to film the police, they have a problem with it, but they have no problem with coming into your home and filming you and only later on telling you that's what they've done. One law for one, another law for another. Claire says, I'm not a criminal. I'm a decent woman who works full-time and has never been in trouble with the law or even had problems with my neighbours. I cannot believe they are allowed to bully and intimidate people who are not even aware they have done anything wrong and film them in their homes without their knowledge. Following advice from Civil Liberties Group Manifesto Club, Claire asked to have her money refunded. The council refused to repay, but eventually gave her £350 as a gesture of goodwill, still £50 short of the full fine. A council spokesperson said, Redbridge Council has over 15,000 reports of flight tipping per year, which cost in excess of half a million pounds to clear. We also seek to take a proportionate approach to enforcement and regularly review the way in which officers carry out their duties using feedback from residents to improve the ways in which we work. Josie Appleton, who runs the Manifesto Club, which campaigns against the hyper-regulation of everyday life, supported Claire in her battle with the council. She wants to see financial incentives removed for issuing these fines so that enforcement officers focus on worst offenders rather than easy targets. It is fundamentally against the principles of justice that there is an incentive to punish, says Josie, because of this companies pick easy targets and find people who have done nothing wrong or who have made a mistake rather than going after serious offenders who are more difficult to catch. A lot of the people we speak to 
who have received these fines cannot afford to pay them. It's a strain to find that money out of their budget and feed themselves. Still three quarters of people issued with fines will just pay up, whether or not they've done anything wrong, so it's an easy way of bringing in revenue. And when companies and local authorities rely on this money, who is to say these dustbin police are above setting people up, putting something with a person's address on in a bag of dumped waste? If you can make money that easily, then why not? This is what Elise Briggs fears happened to her when a company acting on behalf of Harringay Council accused her of dumping a bag of rubbish on the pavement near her home in Wood Green, North London. She had, in fact, put it in her non-recyclables wheelie bin. Elise, 23, a receptionist, received an £80 penalty notice for apparently purposefully leaving a bag of rubbish outside a house egg door stand from her home last June. The letter was sent by Kingdom Services, to whom the council had outsourced responsibility for enforcing the Environmental Protection Act. It contained photographs of a Tesco carrier, the contents of which included a letter from her bank with her name and address on it. Kingdom, which is understood to work on behalf of 28 different local authorities, saw its profits jump by 30% to £9 million in 2016. It featured in a panorama investigation last year in which an employee claimed to receive £987 bonus in one month for issuing in excess of four fines per day. I emailed them explaining that I hadn't dumped the bag in the street and pointing out that there are CCTV cameras outside a nearby shop, so there should be footage showing whoever had done it, recalls Ellis. I couldn't believe it when they replied saying that it was up to me to prove my innocence or pay the fine. It seemed like a small thing, but it was quite upsetting, especially given the amount of bulky rubbish, mattresses and white goods I see dumped in streets close to my home. Where are enforcement officers when these are discarded? When the local authority threatened to take the lease to court for non-payment of a fine, she approached the Daily Mail. It was only when this paper contacted Harringay Council last October that the penalty was finally withdrawn. As part of our efforts to tackle littering and fly tipping, we took up a trial with Kingdom, which ended last year and has not been renewed. As there is no official appeals process, the only opportunity residents have to make their case is in the dock at a magistrate's court during a criminal hearing. However, this was something that Mama 2, Elise Jenner, 47, was willing to go through rather than pay her fine, issued by Kingdom on behalf of Ealing Council in Hanwell, West London. The Pilates and Ballet instructor put out bags of recyclable waste neatly broken down next to a full recycling bin on December 28, 2016, as the local council website instructed its residents to do. She was therefore astonished to receive in the post an £80 penalty for fly tipping, together with photographs of the family's recyclables, including letters bearing their address, a few days later. I was really hopping mad and adamant I was not going to pay, says Liz. I've always put out extra bags, especially after Christmas, because our bins are only emptied fortnightly, but it's always very neatly parceled up. I'm a keen recycler and try to throw as little as possible into the waste bin. Isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing to help save our planet? Lise, who has a daughter, Amira, 15, and a son, Marlow, 10, with husband Paul, a landscape gardener, posted about her experience on a local Facebook page and was inundated with hundreds of comments from neighbours who had been similarly targeted. She spoke to her Labour MP, Virendra Sharma, who contacted the council on the generous behalf and the penalty was withdrawn. The council apologised and said the notice had been issued by mistake due to a change in recycling collection days over Christmas. Of course I was relieved, but also angry that they would no doubt continue to go for other soft targets like me, says Liz. Indeed, Liz's is a minor victory in what many believe is a war being waged against law-abiding citizens by waste disposal warriors. Happy to use guerrilla tactics in their bid to not clean up our streets but to line their own pockets well we've come to the end of this two-part pay-per-view and 
surely anybody who's listened thus far will be in no doubt that the Hunger Games Society and Orwell's 1984 is unfolding around us, especially given the fact that it was in two parts this week to encompass all the articles. And people were saying, how can 1984 be so accurate? How can Hunger Games and other movies that are out at the moment be so accurate in portraying the world the agenda wants to bring in and the world unfolding around us. Well, as I've said before, the reason we're seeing, in terms of the Hunger Games, the reason we're seeing so many movies portraying the very world the elite wants to create is because of something called predictive programming. The idea is to put this world in front of people so many times that people download it to the subconscious and it becomes familiar to them, or more familiar. And in terms of 1984... I mentioned Aldous Huxley earlier, and Aldous Huxley and George Orwell knew each other. Huxley taught Orwell French at the elite Eton College where the Royals go, and books like 1984 and Brave New World were not written from imagination alone. As I've said before, there's an agenda for the world, and if you can access that agenda, then you can very accurately predict, it's not even prediction really, it's knowledge of an, it's knowledge of an agenda. You can very accurately talk about or portray the world that's coming the world that's coming because unless anything intervenes to stop that happening that agenda unfolding then it's going to unfold and the whole point is to get informed about it so that it doesn't happen and Orwell and Huxley absolutely were coming from knowledge of an agenda Suzanne Collins with the Hunger Games I don't know what her motivation was for writing that book in in that way I would guess there's more chance of the movie being made from knowledge rather than the book being written from knowledge of the agenda, but I have no idea. But the point is, what is absolutely certain is the world, Orwell, Huxley and Suzanne Collins and the movie Hunger Games portrayed is happening around us now as this two-part episode of pay-per-view has shown. And it's not by accident, it's by cold, calculated, long-planned design. And it's up to the people to decide that that won't be the case any longer because it's only us that are going to do it, or not. That's the choice we make. So I hope you've enjoyed pay-per-view this week. There's certainly been a lot of content. And I look forward to doing it again for next week's pay-per-view. And continuing to put news headlines in their true context. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye.